0: I'm so glad you're with us this morning. As Pastor Corey said, today marks the first week or the first installment of this brand new series that we are calling Look Again. And really what this series is going to be all about is looking at the new that Jesus came to introduce, right? This kingdom that he came to establish. But just to kind of lay a little bit of groundwork, to where I want to go this morning, I actually brought something with me, and I don't know if any of you guys will remember this little booklet or not, and I don't know if you can see this, but this is the Indiana Driver's Manual, right? This is the so-called rules of the road, right? If you want to drive in the state of Indiana, you should know everything that is written in this book. You should know the rules so that when you get in a situation you will be able to know how to act, respond, or what to do in that situation, right? And so this has all kinds of different rules, things as simple as when you approach an intersection and there's a traffic signal, a green light means what? Go. Go. Oh, that was an easy one. But how about this? When you approach an intersection with a non-operating signal, what do you do? Well, here's the thing. There's four options. <laughs> Option number A is you can actually just continue through the intersection without decelerating and just hope that there is no one else going through that intersection at the same time that you're going through it. <laughs> Option B, you can stop at the non-operating signal and wait for a repair man to come and fix the signal. <laughs> C. You can approach the signal, pull to the side, and wait for somebody who is choosing to do option A, going through the intersection, and then you just follow them through it, right? Like a football play, you're just following, right, that that guy, that fullback that's clearing the way for you. Or D, approach the intersection as you would a four-way stop, stop, look, and then go through the intersection when it is your appropriate turn. Right, it's obvious, I think, what the answer is. Matter of fact, would anybody here choose option A, B, or C? I'm just checking because if you were to choose one of those three options, I'm going to ask you to give all of us the courtesy after the service to just stay in your seat, let all of us get in our car and get to our our, uh, place where we're going, our destination, and then you can go about 10 minutes after everyone's left the parking lot. No, I know that's funny and I know this manual is meant to write, portray a bunch of rules that we're supposed to follow, but the reason why I bring this up is that many of us, we approach Jesus's teachings and what he came to introduce, this kingdom, in a very similar manner. Like, it's this list of things to do and a list of things not to do. But you see, Rules, here's the problem. Rules don't have the power to actually transform the heart. Rules actually only help modify behavior. I'll say it like this. Rules lead to behavior modification. They can't lead to heart transformation. You see, I'll prove it like this. If a police officer today, when you leave service, if they were to pull you over, they tap on the window You roll it down. They're not going to lean in and say, did you happen to read your driver's manual this morning? Did you contemplate on it? Did you meditate on it? Does it express the longings of your soul? Like, didn't it just make you want to get in your car and drive a little bit longer? Don't you wish your kids could sign up for more extra school activities just so you can be in your car and go to all these different destinations so you can follow the rules that are in this manual? No, a cop doesn't do that. He also doesn't tap on that window and say, okay, well, I know you were going the speed limit, but I just detect there's some resentment in your heart that there is a speed limit to begin with. (laughs) And on top of that, I also know that man, there, there's just a little bit of pride in your heart because I can tell you think you know the rules of the road better than the other drivers that are out there. Many of y'all laughing, but that's a lot of y'all out there. That's not, that's kind of me too. Right? You look at everybody else and are like, man, I just wish they would learn how to drive. I know y'all said that before. But you say that because you think you know the rules of the road better than they know the rules of the word, road. And there's this pride that begins to Well up, right? Like this, man, the the cop is saying, man, there's this root of bitterness in your life. Man, sin is crouching at your door. I can just tell it. Man, a cop doesn't do that. Why? Because rules can't lead to a heart transformation. They only lead to behavior modification. And why am I bringing this up? Well, what Jesus came to introduce wasn't a new set of laws. It wasn't a a new set of rules and regulations that, that we had to follow to be right with God. You see, that is what was for 1,500 years the case with the Mosaic Law, and that was never able to make somebody righteous or in right standing with God. You see, it couldn't do that. So when Jesus steps on the scene, when he initiates, right, his ministry, like the inauguration of this incredible ministry at 30 years old, right, he gets baptized, he goes to the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days, he steps back on the scene in Galilee, and he says this sentence. It's found in Mark chapter 1. We can also see it in Matthew 1, but Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15 says this. It says, Jesus went into Galilee Proclaiming the good news of God. Everybody say good news. You see, this is so critical. We have to see this because many people believe that good news or other translations say the gospel is just right that Jesus was born a virgin. He lived a perfect life of obedience to the Father. He willingly went to the cross. He died. They placed him in a tomb, but the tomb couldn't hold him. He got up three days later. He's alive. That's the gospel. Now, Jesus, though, steps on the scene. This is the very first words of his ministry. He says that he went out proclaiming the good news of God. The cross, the empty tomb, hadn't happened yet. Like, are you seeing this? So what is the good news then? What is part of the gospel? Now, that's part of it, but it's not all of it, right? The cross, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, that's part of the gospel, but it's not all of it. He goes on in verse 15 to tell us what this good news is. He says this, the time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near. Basically, he said, the kingdom is right here in front of you. It's, it's right here at hand. It's within reach. Why? Because I'm here. And Jesus is saying, look, the king is here, and I'm here to represent and to initiate this kingdom now on earth, right? When he was with his disciples, he didn't just pray, oh, one day when you get to the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. He says, no. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? So when we see kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, it's not just an afterlife thing, right? The kingdom is actually in operation right now. And so that's why Jesus had to say, go back, he had to say the kingdom of God has come near. He says, repent and believe the good news. Oh man, this this is so good. Repent and believe the good news. For years, we've just taught that repent means to turn from our sin and to something else, right? That Jesus paid the penalty for our sin on the cross, and now we're to turn to God and follow after him and his righteousness. But that's not just all of it. And how do I know that? Because he says repent and believe the good news. I just told you that that good news of the cross and the tomb, the empty tomb, hadn't happened yet. So he's saying repent and believe the good news of the kingdom, So then if repent doesn't just mean to turn from your sin and turn to God, then what else could it mean? Well, we have to dissect what this word is in the Greek. If you're taking notes, this word uh, repent in the Greek is the Greek word metanoia. Metanoia. And it's like this two phrases, and very literally it means a change of mind to change the way you think, or it quite very possibly could mean literally these two words, look again. It's where we're getting the title for the series that we're in. Look again. Look at what you're operating in. Look at the system that you've established in how you relate to God again. Because for 1,500 years, I don't know if you can realize it or not, but it hasn't been working. That's why I have to do something completely new. Look again. Are you looking to religion or can you look again and now see me? See that the King has come to establish this kingdom, and this kingdom is all about three things. Paul picks up on this in Romans 14, and I want you to see this. Romans 14:17. Paul says the kingdom is not a matter of eating or drinking. Right, and he's not just talking about you know uh, things that you put into your body. Right, this whole conversation that Paul's having in this moment when he says this has to do with a bunch of people coming to him and saying, "Hey, do we still have to follow rules and regulations or not? Do we still have to follow all of these laws or not? Can I eat food sacrificed to idols? Can I drink this or, or do that?" Paul says, "Look, it's not a matter. Basically, we can substitute instead of eating and drinking, we can substitute law living for that for that phrase." And he says, "The kingdom of God is not a matter of law living; it's a matter of righteousness, peace, and joy." in the Holy Spirit. Righteousness, peace, and joy. So for the next three weeks, that's what we're gonna unpack for you in this series and and how we're righteous and how he brings us peace and how a byproduct of those two things, knowing that you're righteous and knowing that you have true peace is that you get to live in this abundant joy and this freedom that Christ came to bring. So if we understand, you know, and most of us possibly do that, We don't base our righteousness on our, right, our law living. We base it on Jesus' life and what he did, right? It's not about what we do. It's everything he's done. But we have to answer the question, though, why is it that Jesus ultimately had to come? We have to ask the question, what's wrong with religion anyway? And when I say religion, I basically I mean following a set of rules and regulations, following, you know, laws as it pertains and how we relate to God. What what's the problem with religion anyway? Well, I want to show you today there's three big big problems with it. And how we think that. You know, we're at a place where we understand that, okay, yeah, it's only about what Jesus has done, but many of us still allow religion to creep in. We we don't make it just solely on the relationship that we have with Jesus and we don't solely a lot of times rely on him. We're still trying through our efforts, through striving, through just living a certain way, we think we can relate to God or get approved. Uh, by God a little bit more, but I'm going to tell you that is not the case. And, and we're going to unpack just a very quick story. If you're by your Bible, I really uh, would love for you to turn with me to Luke chapter 18. We're just going to look at a very short parable here this morning, and we're going to really look at the problem with religion and, and really the problem with following just a set of laws and where that leads to because it doesn't lead to life. So here we go, Luke chapter 18 Starting in verse 9, it says this. This is Jesus. He says, to some who were confident in their own righteousness, right? This is a self-righteousness thing, people trying to get right with God based on what they could do. It says, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Verse 10, two men went up to the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, and the other, a tax collector. Let me just stop right here and break this down and contrast these two people. So a Pharisee, this is somebody who would try to live up to the letter of the law to a T. Right? There were 613 different laws or commands based on the Mosaic covenant. And yeah, I might know that there is 613, but I can't tell you even half of the 613. But this dude, the Pharisee, he knew all 613, and he tried to live his life according to every single one of those laws. Right, if we were to compare it to somebody today, and and I don't like to make this comparison, but a lot of people in the community might look to like a pastor of a church, like the Pharisee was. Right, he was a leader in the religious establishment of the day. Right, people thought, people would have thought, man, that guy has it figured out, that guy has a direct line to God, he knows what living for God is all about. But if a pastor um, is kind of our interpretation of a Pharisee, then today. As we look at the tax collector, I really don't have anything to compare this tax collector to. Matter of fact, what you have to realize that in this culture, tax collectors, man, they were the worst of the worst. Matter of fact, they had their own tax collector, or they had their own tax. Collector. They had their own category, and how people defined them. Matter of fact, when Jesus came, he it says he came and he hung out with people that the Pharisees looked down on. The Pharisees went to Jesus' disciples and they asked him, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? They couldn't even lump tax collectors in with sinners. They couldn't just say, why does he eat with sinners? Man, there's this separate category, and why? Because, man, they would swindle people out of their money. People knew it, but that there was nothing they could do about it. You see, tax collectors, they were Jews who worked for the Roman government. That's strike one, right? The Roman government came in, right? The Roman Empire, they are, they are conquering and ruling, right? The, the people and the Jewish people of that area, but now some Jews have turned to work for the Roman Empire and they're going out collecting taxes and they're taking people's money, but they get to charge kind of whatever they can get away with. They give the Roman government their cut and they keep whatever's left over. So it's kind of like this. Today, if I were an IRS agent, many of you would probably already look down on me, but if it's, but if it's something where I say the scenarios, I kind of went to rich, and I said, Rich, man, I'm the with the IRS, went over your numbers, you owe me $5,000 this year in taxes. Rich is like, what? That can't be that. Man, that's over twice as what I thought it was going to be. No, I can't do it. And I'm like, hey, you see these guys over here? You don't pay me, they're going to take you to prison, then you can't work at all and provide for your family, so you got to cough up the money. So Rich sacrifices, he does what he has to do, he has to pay me if not he's going to be thrown in prison possibly killed he pays me the five thousand dollars i go over here to the roman treasury and i'm like hey you remember rich yeah this is for his account here's three grand to pay for his taxes and walk out the door and i'm not even going to show him that other two grand that i just pocketed how do you think that made rich feel you see the roman government knew it but they didn't care rich knew it he couldn't do anything about it and i'm sitting there living the high life off of his earnings and his work all i'm doing is coming to collect Man, I would have been considered the lowest of the low in this culture, right? So there's this contrast, right? In this culture, and I'm not saying today in this culture, you have the Pharisee, good guy, tax collector, bad guy, right? So Jesus tells this this, this parable, and we're going to pick it back up in verse 11. It says this. It says, the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, robbers evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Verse 12, I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. Like right now, that's, this is probably like instilling a little bit of anger in your life. Like thinking about what he is doing right now and how he is acting and responding. Right? Like there's this arrogance About him, but this is exactly what I want to talk about. This is what religion does. Why doesn't religion work? Well, number one, if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down based on these two verses. There is so much in it, but number one, religion leads to separation. It says that the Pharisee was in the temple, but he went and stood where? By himself. Man, I, I have to seclude myself from everybody else. All their mess-ups and all the stuff that they're involved in, the sin that's in their life, I don't want that to jump on me. I'm going to separate myself over here, and I'm going to look good over here. They look bad. I look good. You see, we even do this today. That's why last week when we closed out Dark Room, I talked about right how we're supposed to make uh, most of the opportunities we've been giving and to live uh, an incredible life, to, to act wisely when we're around unbelievers Paul was saying, look, there's going to be a time where you are invested into people, people's lives that don't know you. It might be messy because people are sometimes messy, right? God kind of showed us that we're not to separate ourselves, but to inject ourselves into people's lives, right? We're not supposed to run and hide. Light is supposed to come and shine in darkness. You see, God, whenever Adam and Eve messed up, right, God still came. He still called out to his kids, where are you? He still pursued them. And this scripture tells us that even while we were at our worst, even yet while we were sinners, Christ came, right? God came in the flesh and injected himself into humanity, into our mess. So religion, though, leads to separation. A relationship leads to interjection. Second thing religion does that we see from this is that religion, it actually leads to spiritual pride. It leads to spiritual pride. Right? Think about what this guy did. It said he looked down on the tax collector and he says, God, I'm so thankful I'm not like them. What did he do? He elevated himself. You see, that, that's what law living does. It causes us to compare ourselves with other people and then we kind of elevate ourselves based on the good things we do and the bad things they do. You see, all this does, it kind of leads to this cycle of self-sufficiency. I got this figured out. I can do it all. I have, you know, all the answers. I can follow all the rules. It's this self-sufficiency, right, that leads to, right, this idea of, you know, self-importance that now I'm important. I have value based on a position or based on a title because I've done all these things. When you live in that cycle, this self-sufficiency to self-importance leads to self-exaltation. Right, We put ourselves above every, everybody else. But this spiritual pride does this. And religion just leads to it. it I'll say it like this. Spiritual pride it is an inward emotion that leads to an unwanted outward action. Let me say it again. Spiritual pride is this inward emotion that leads to an unwanted outward action. I'll describe it like this. I've I got a pretty, pretty cool story to share with you. So when I turned 16... Um, I actually got a hand-me-down car from my parents. It was a beautiful 1984 Capri Classic, a.k.a. the boat. (laughs) A.k.a. I didn't know if it was going to make it from point A to point B. (laughs) A.k.a. my parents called it a character builder. (laughs) And so when I would drive this car... I mean, part of me was thankful, but part of me as a 16-year-old kid just getting his license, getting his first car, part of me, you know, I had to pray every time I was in that car, and I prayed, one, that it would get me from point A to point B, but the biggest prayer I prayed in that car was, God, don't let any of my friends see me driving around this thing. So I tried to just like come in and come out without anybody realizing the car that I was driving, that kind of thing. When I was 18, I saved up a little bit of money and I went out with my parents' help, actually. I bought a 1990 Mitsubishi Eclipse. Red, alloy wheels, spoiler, sunroof. Man, I put two 10 10-inch subs in the back of that thing. So you didn't just see me coming, you heard me coming. Now you can judge me for that if you want, but that's just how I rolled. And in, in that car, I wasn't praying that no one saw me. Matter of fact... And uh, I don't know, is my sister here, Shara? You'll know this car. Man, we rode around bumping in this car a ton. And, uh, man, windows were down. Matter of fact, Shara would get on me all the time. Will you just roll the windows up? It's like 20 degrees outside. No. No, people are going to see me in this thing. They're going to hear me in this thing. You know, and I'm just rolling around. Instead of praying nobody would see me, I'm rolling around. Hey, girl, what's going on? How How you doing? right? Just cruising, just wanting some attention, right? But that was, nothing changed other than the car I got, but the car, it actually instilled a little bit of pride and it actually had with it an unwanted outward action. You You see what spiritual pride does in our life, it causes us to compare. And we live in this idea of comparison. And I promise you, you might say that You know, I don't know if I really operate in religion or not, but all of us have a little bit of a Pharisee in us because I guarantee you, many of us, if not all of us, we deal with this curse of comparison. And especially, man, you know who are the worst at comparing? I'm just going to throw it out there, parents. I'm a parent, but man, we compare. We compare by how our kids are acting and living, and we judge our ability to parent on if our kids aren't doing those things or they are doing those things. You know, can you believe so and so down there? Can you believe their kids are crazy, man? If they keep down that path, they're going to end up in jail or, or, or even worse, you know. And and we begin to just compare, but we think we're just throwing out words, but what we're really doing is saying that so that we get some kind of encouragement, that we get somehow uplifted in our life. But that does not happen by tearing down somebody else. But that's what happens when we just follow a set of rules, when we try to live by our own righteousness, self righteousness, man. It causes us to compare. It leads to fault finding. And how many people, you know, walk around just trying to find faults in everybody else? Right, that's what religion does. It tries to hide the sin in us, but it highlights the sin in others. Oh, that was really good. And that's what happened. Matter of fact, Jesus had to step on the scene, and he had to even say things like this. Why are you worried about a speck of sawdust in your brother's eye, and you're failing to see the log that's in your own? Now, that is some crazy language, and that is like, you know, a very drastic illustration. But it's what, what, what's what was happening. It's what happens even today when we operate in religion. We want to fi- uh, find faults in everybody else, but we don't want to know, we don't want other people to get in our behind the scene and what's going on in our life. But that's what it does. It leads to fault finding. And then, and then lastly, it just, it seeks out attention, right? When you operate in the spiritual, spiritual pride, it seeks out attention. Oh, look at me, right? Like, like the guy in the car. Oh, I'm doing a little bit better. Look at me, everybody. I'm better than you, you know. Especially Jesus had to approach this too and to kind of deal with this mindset. Right when he was at the temple and people that were giving a lot, man, they weren't, you know, just giving in secret, man. They wanted to make sure everybody saw what they give. Hey, here's my offering in the bucket. See this? This big amount. That's what was happening. And Jesus said, "Look, the the woman that came and just gave two coins, man, gave more than anyone else in this place because she gave out of her poverty, out of her lack. They were just giving not only out of abundance, but just to gain attention. And that's a—it's back to the heart, right? Following rules cannot lead to a heart transformation. All it does is lead to behavior modification. And the third thing that religion does." Just based on these two verses, man, you see how the Bible is like so packed with so much wisdom? Man, just in these two verses, there is so much, even more than I'm even going to be able to unpack today. But the third thing is this. As it pertains to religion, this Pharisee teaches us that religious mindset or religion, it leads to serving minimally. I want you to think about what he was boasting in, this guy. He says, man, I'm so thankful that I'm not like everyone else. And he goes on to say, I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of everything that I get. Like he's boasting in that. But can I tell you, that is what the law like requires minimally. That is the bare minimum. He's not going above and beyond. He's doing the bare minimum. it's kind of like, and and many of you might remember the story when the rich young ruler comes to Jesus And he says, Jesus, what must, or good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, why do you call me good? There's only one that's good. I think at that moment, if the rich young ruler would have said, well, I call you good because you are the son of God. I think at that moment, his belief would have just made everything fine because he would have made him righteous in his belief, not behavior, but he's still stuck on behavior. So he says, which of the commandments must I do to inherit eternal life? And whenever I look at that story, I pick up that line he says, which ones? Like, I know there's 613 of them, but I don't want to follow them all. Is there only a certain minimal amount that I can do to just skate by in life? But isn't this many of us? Is there just like a minimum that I can do and then I can just skate by? I don't have to worry about doing anything else? That's what, that's what this man approached Jesus with. And that's what this guy, this Pharisee was like, look, man, I fast twice a week and I give a tenth. Well, that's the bare minimum. And I don't know about you, but we even say in here, man, we want to be people that have a generous mindset. We don't want it to always just do the bare minimum, not just in giving of our money, but giving of our time, our talents when we're involved in, in relationship. We don't want to do the bare minimum. Can you imagine like what Melanie and I's relationship would look like if both of us just gave the bare minimum in this marriage relationship? It would not be a relationship that is thriving. It would just be surviving. So that was the Pharisee. All his life, he had just followed a set of rules. And this had been happening for 1,500 years. And Jesus steps on the scene. He's like, look again. That's not going to make you righteous. It's not going to improve your standing with God. It cannot do it. And then he opposes the Pharisee with the tax collector. And we're going to pick back up the story in verse 13. Check this out. He says this but the tax collector stood at a distance. You see, he didn't even think that he was worthy to even go into the temple. He said he would not even look up to heaven. He said, but he beat his breast and he said this. He said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Why why would he cry out like this? I'm gonna tell you why. It's because for him, he was in a hopeless situation. He was in a hopeless situation because if he was following the letter of the law, the law would have required him to give back everything that he took and that he stole plus 20%. That's what the law requires, to be made right. To kind of atone for his sin. But there was an no way he was going to be able to do that, right? It was an impossibility, right? Think about it. The lifetime that he lived, he only got his money. I told you early, earlier, swindling people out of, their, out of their hard-earned money, he paid Rome what they needed and kept the rest. This is how he made a living, a lifetime of this. And so there was no way he was going to be able to pay back everybody, everything that he took, plus 20%. He's like, God, I'm hopeless, Right, he was at a position where he said, I can't do anything. Would you have mercy on me? You see, if if grace is giving somebody something that they don't deserve, mercy is not giving somebody something that they do deserve. You see, this guy, he he deserved to be labeled a sinner. This guy deserved to be cast off. This guy deserved not to be righteous. But because he came to a place in his life, you got to get this, because he came to a place in his life that, look, I can't do anything about it. I can't, I can't atone for that. I can't live up to some kind of law that the law requires. I can't do anything. God, I'm emptying all of myself. I can't do anything. And when you're at a place where you feel like you can't do anything, that's the exact spot where God wants to fill you with his grace. Because it's not about what you do. It's about everything that Jesus does and Jesus picks up. And in in verse 14, he actually says this, if we can get that pulled up. He said, I tell you that this man, this tax collector, rather than the Pharisee, went home justified. Justified. You know, a a few, uh, few weeks ago, about a month ago, Pastor Corey had an incredible message, and he talked about justification and how justified, what it means is just as if we had never sinned. Can you imagine what this tax collector would have felt in that moment? What do you mean I don't have to do anything? You mean, you mean that you have the ability to justify me? Yes. That's exactly what Jesus did when he went To the cross, he took the sin of the world upon himself. Yes, he died, but he got back up again. He is alive. And I'm telling you, that means so much more than you think it does. You have to look again, not only to his life, not only to this message of the kingdom, but you have to actually look at your life. And every single day, here's what I want to challenge you with. Every single day, you need to wake up in the morning before your feet hit the ground out of the bed. You need to say, you know what? Today, I'm going to choose Jesus. You see, because you can get up every day thinking, well, I got to do this, 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 this. And if I can do these things, then, you know, I might be doing okay, especially with my relationship with God. You know, if I go to church, check. If I pray five minutes, check. If I give a little bit, check. If I help my neighbor, check. No, if you just wake up every day and say, you know what, Jesus, I'm going to choose you. And you can honestly get out of that bed and you can walk and live in confidence knowing that your righteousness doesn't come by all those things. It simply comes from what he did on the cross so look again look again what are you what are you looking to i'm going to get uh, get tim to come back up and help me as i close and 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 here's how how i wanted to close i wanted to bring up one last scripture right as we're talking about this idea of of living living in a way where where it's not following a bunch of rules. That's not how we are made righteous. We're made righteous on the finished work of Jesus. But there is a set of scripture and I want you to write this down. It's Romans chapter three, 20 to 22. And it's an amazing passage of scripture. It's it's honestly one of my favorite little sections that that Paul writes in any of his letters. And and I love it. I love what it means for us. He says this in Romans chapter three, 20. He says, therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight By the works of the law. Do you see that? You see, that's why Jesus had to come. Because no one can be righteous in the way they've been doing it for 1,500 years. You can't do it by following a checklist. That only leads to behavior modification, not heart transformation. No one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law... (laughs) We become conscious of sin. You see, if you just try to live your life following a bunch of laws, you know what that does? It causes you to just focus on sin and probably be active in sin even more. Matter of fact, Paul says in another place, apart from the law, we wouldn't even know what sin was. But because the law was introduced, now sin was being credited to our account, but that's why Jesus came. Now, all of our sin is placed on him and what he did. None of it's placed on our account. That's why we are made righteous. And it says this, how are we made righteous? Verse 21, apart from the law, I love this, apart from it, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. Look, the law and the prophets, right? The Old Testament is what we would call it. All of it was just pointing to Jesus. It was just testifying of him. So as we look through the Old Testament, we're not there to look for like ways we should live after the cross. We're there to just mind for Jesus. Where is Jesus in this story? Where is Jesus in this passage? How is it that I'm become righteous based on what he was trying to do in the old? It was just a shadow of what was to come. In Verse 22, it says this, this righteousness, I love this, right? The kingdom is righteousness, peace and joy. This righteousness is giving, is given, through faith in Jesus, to some, no, to a few, no, to all who believe. That's that's it. Matter of fact, Jesus says in Matthew 6, he says, this is the word that, or this is the work that God requires. You want to talk about a word? Simply believe in the one that he sent. It's, It's about our belief, not our behavior. It's about belief in Jesus and what he accomplished on our behalf on the cross. And I'm telling you right now, I don't know what you came in with this morning. I don't know what it is that, that's been maybe getting you down, but maybe it's you've had a little bit of Pharisee and you, you've been just trying to live in relationship with God based on a set of rules instead of just enjoying the relationship that Jesus came to offer. Matter of fact, I, I want to read you something that, that I wrote just, just last night. What I really wanted you to focus on in this series, look again, is the difference between religion and relationship. Jesus did not come to start a religion. He came to show us the love of God. Religion is all about how you perform. Relationship is about how Jesus performed. Religion says if you work hard enough, maybe God will love you. Relationship says because God loved me, man, I want to just live for him. Religion is all about what you do. Relationship tells you Jesus already did it all for you. It's done. So quit trying to do it on your own because you can't. trust in Him.